0: Off the ball. There's so many players, like some like Martin and Mann that you can get in a look in. Brazil are gonna win that World Cup lads. I'm adding an absolute bank. Subscribe now to the OTB football
1: podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB sports app.
0: The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Now then Sunday Papers, you're very welcome you through the back pages first off Sunday World we should uh, mention very top of the Sunday World Golden Girls because it's been an extraordinary uh, performance by the Irish boxers over the past week picture of Kelly Harrington holding a gold medal as is her uh, general habit these days Amy Broadhurst as well Aoife O'Rourke three gold medals Golden Girls they lead the way of the uh, ten fighters who were out At the European Championships, uh, 10 Irish fighters, seven came home with medals, which is just extraordinary. And then picture Jurgen Klopp in his face, paints a picture just slack-jawed as he looked on yesterday. Klopp admits he's in very big trouble after embarrassing defeat at Forest. Uh, Crippling uh, result for Liverpool, writes Kevin Palmer, and Klopp said afterwards his side are as low as possible. It feels as low as possible. Massive, massive blow. I have no idea how we could lose that game. And he said... We had to make some late changes. We didn't train with this formation for one second, but that is not an excuse. We have to win this game. So they'll go 14 points behind Arsenal if they uh, Arsenal win today against Southampton. Back page then of the Sunday Mirror. Top picture is Jurgen Klopp looking down. You can't really see his face. Baseball cap on. Klopp's forest fire. And then below that, Chris and make up, as in kiss and make up. It's a picture of Ten Hag and Ronaldo and uh, Cristiano Ronaldo has told Eric Ten Hag he wants to uh, fight for his place which I don't know if that's going to work out very well many things and on various fronts, we'll come to that in a moment and then uh, picture Casemiro after his equaliser at Sanford Bridge yesterday I mean it's Casemiro he talked about his water carrier when he arrived and, and maybe in the company of Modric and Cruz he didn't stand out as the ball player of that trio but in Manchester United's midfield he was fantastic on the ball last night I think he's surprising a few people uh, Sun Sport. Then they have a uh, brainless, ruthless, fearless. The brainless is Klopp. The ruthless, <laughs> it's a bit harsh. Ruthless is Haaland, and fearless is Casemiro. Is the back page of the uh, Sun. Then we have Mail on Sunday. It's a picture of Rob Russell scoring a try for Leinster last night. Blues cruise. Russell's late try seals bonus point for Leinster as they hold off dogged Munster youngsters. Leinster twenty-seven, Munster thirteen. If you missed it last night at the Aviva. And then an interesting story here. Shane McGrath, back page. Call for sports funding to be linked to discipline. So this is a Fianna Fáil TD. Neve Smith, she's TD for Cavan Monaghan. She's on the Oireachtas uh, Joint Committee for Tourism, Culture, Art and Sport as well. And she's saying that maybe funding for various organisations should be linked to discipline. Sunday Independent then. The picture is of Joey Carberry looking on as Leinster score another try. Dan Sheehan going over and then Klopp. We only have ourselves to blame. And then the Sunday Times uh, picture of Joey Carberry at the very top. And it's Carberry and Munster beaten 27-13 by Leinster. And then the other picture is, uh, it's a great one, of Kepa at Stamford Bridge last night. He's just got a touch to Casemiro's header. It's come off the upright and now he's trying to frantically grab the ball before it crosses the line. Point made is the uh, headline. And beneath that, Kenny hits out of critics stuck in the Charlton era. Very happy to say, we have Gavin Casey of the 42 here in studio. Gav, thanks for popping up this Thank morning. You. Appreciate it. And Shane Keegan, Cove ramblers manager. You're very welcome as have well. Job. I'm great. So Kenny hits out at critics stuck in Charlton era. Seen as that's in front of me here on the front page of The Sunday Times, this is an interview in The uh, Currency, on The Currency podcast. And so he has called critics who criticise him as being, quote, institutionalised. Going back to the Jack Charlton era, which was an amazing era. What brought success was a certain way of playing. A lot of teams, a lot of ex-players have played that way. They didn't believe we had the players to play another way. They're institutionalised and we are institutionalised. Some journalists were part of that era. People are institutionalised into thinking there's no other way. I know that can sound quite strong. I do get that. I'm not trying to insult anyone, he says. He's asked about the Brian Kerr criticism. I've known Brian a long time. I don't hold grudges and I can move on. At any stage, and he said of the campaign ahead, "I'll never just sit down and play with a low block and hope m- we can get a set play. I just won't manage that way. They're going to be on the front foot." So, uh, journalists institutionalised from the Charlton era.
1: Yeah, I suppose when he talks about the ex players, I'm, I'm not so sure how much I'd put in that. I, I mean, any of the. People that I've heard on talking, if they are referring to, you know, Ireland being successful, I think more so they were referring to McCarthy era or the good results we got under O'Neill. You don't hear, you know, I suppose Damien Laney is one of the key voices and, and others like that. You, you don't hear them referring back to, you know, we need to play like we did in the Charlton era. <laughs> um, I think no. it's more so kind of comments about, you know, the good results that we were able to achieve playing a different way under McCarthy and O'Neill. So I don't know how much I'd buy into that. Um yeah, the one about take them taking them on toe to toe. I'll never just sit back and play with a low block and hope we can get a set play. Um, it's so brave. It's it's and he means it. He 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 absolutely means it. And yet I can't but think that's exactly surely what we need to try and do in some of the games that are going to come up. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how we get on against. Uh, some of the countries we're facing in TEF, we're going to try and go toe to toe and press them and try and outplay them, you
0: know? Yeah. I mean, I would, Damon Delaney, I would think, I mean, if anyone stresses the argument that Stephen Kenny doesn't have a mon- monopoly on progressive football, it's him. He's saying, well, whether it's Stephen Kenny or someone else, we're going to play good football. We have to play good football. He's certainly not saying, let's go back to Jack Charlton era. I think that's a. A misrepresentation of what's yeah. been said, really, isn't it? Yeah,
1: that, that and that's that's my point, yeah. I think, look, you know, I'd say I didn't see the, the leading questions leading into this. It be interesting to hear the full thing, all right. But you know, this might be the end of a conversation that we're getting here and he might have been kind of backed into a corner a little bit on the various different criticisms he's getting. But no, I, exactly, I haven't heard a whole lot of people. Nobody is, is, is harping back to that. Um, but he's just coming out swinging, really, a little bit, isn't
0: he? Coming out swinging a bit. Yeah, I guess the
2: irony is that... He's speaking about people in the media, past players being institutionalised and his refusal to play a low block ever would be probably um, part of the reason why some of those very people, some of those media professionals and ex-players would suggest that Kenny is almost institutionalised or that he is uh, so steadfast in his own ideology that it lacks pragmatism and that actually frustrates a lot of the people that he seems to be hitting out at. So it's a vicious cycle in a way I agree with Shane it's I find it fascinating that he is so um, almost belligerent in his insistence in in his insistence that uh, Ireland do try to play on the front foot and I guess to an extent you probably require that belligerence if you are going to revolutionise something or overhaul something and almost change the footballing DNA of a country in a way at least on a, a national team level but at the same time looking at that European qualification group upon which you'd imagine his tenure will hinge God, I'd love if he used a little bit of pragmatism even if it was just for his own sake because I actually, for the most part, have really enjoyed watching Ireland over the last couple of years. I don't go into international breaks anymore thinking oh, you know, what a Pain in the hoop. This is like a break from the Premier League, back to the sort of monotony of watching Ireland play Georgia, or, uh, mm. or more likely than not, uh, Oman. I actually am enthused every time the breaks come around, but and for that reason, I'd like to like it to continue. I would love to see Kenny prove everybody wrong who has doubted him. But I do think uh, low block might be required if yeah, that like, is to be the case over like, the coming months.
1: Like you say, he he is literally giving kind of fuel to his critics by saying. I will never sit just sit back and play with a low block. I mean, how can you say you will never do anything when it comes to to a football match? I would regard my playing style or beliefs Joe to be pretty possession based and and pretty front front foot kind of stuff, but Believe it or not, a team I managed once, managed to beat a Stephen Kenny team once when I was Galway manager, and we played a low block for 90 minutes. We got our first shot and target in the 91st minute, and we won the game 1-0. Now, it was as ugly as hell, and it's not the way I want to play every week, but it, it's probably the most famous win I can put to my name, and it required a certain style of play. And You can't write off any style of play before you,
2: you know what the requirements of, of each and every game are. Uh, just, just on that quote, I suppose, as well, like... He says, I'll never just sit down and play with a low block and hope we can get a set play. Uh, and maybe that uh, additional line there about hoping we can get a set play adds a layer of context to it, which is that maybe he's not saying, oh, I will never play a low block ever, but that even if we do deploy a low block, there will be actual transition, there will game. be counter-attacking. Yeah. And, and like we've seen that from Ireland to a degree, I think, where at times under Kenny, they've probably been at their best on the counter and struggled a little bit when facing against a low block. So maybe we're making too much of
0: w- out of one individual line should be fair I think, I think we are segueing into counter-attacking outfit increasingly you know you gave a lamb to the slaughter sigh there when you talked about him not playing a low block <laughs> last year I thought
1: <laughs> yeah it's hard <laughs> to oh hard to avoid giving that side there alright <laughs> so dumb. it is no look like like Gavin says it's, it's, it's watching I've, I've argued the exact other side of the coin only recently on here with, with you guys saying that we're just it's, um, I really I enjoy going to Ireland games more than ever at the moment Um. But I would have thought that I would I would expect to rock up to the Aviva next year for one or th- two of those games and see an Irish team that's perched on the edge of its own 18 in our box and happy to play with 20 possession and, and and hit on the counter. But that would be my expectation.
0: I would think so. Plenty of Chelsea, Manchester United reaction on the front pages as well. So as for coverage within, there are pieces on the game and then. Naturally enough, there are pieces talking about people who were talking about the game because that is uh, <laughs> often the most entertaining aspect. Although it was a very good game, it must be said, but uh, for instance page 5 of the Sunday Times Peter Wilson. Tunnel tantrum uh, showed he cares. Fiery Roy Keane defends absent Star. So Roy Keane and Gary Neville, both former Manchester United captains, involved in heated debate uh, yesterday. So Keane very much still on the Ronaldo side. He always has been even at half time. It was interesting when they showed a Rashford chance. He just threw an equipped that Ronaldo probably would have scored that and Jimmy Floyd-Hasselbank started laughing. And then at full time, there was a proper debate. So Keane said to Neville, who was on co-commentary and then joined them in the studio afterwards, Ten Hag was speaking about spirit after the game. Don't you think that's a message to Ronaldo? So he was arguing Ten Hag's not handling the situation uh, very well. And he's sending barbed messages to Ronaldo. And he went on to say... He still wants to be the best in the world, Ronaldo. That's why I admire him. I'd be more worried if Ronaldo was sitting on the bench laughing his head off, not caring. I think the guy cares. This game is full of bluffers, and he's not one of them. So, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank uh, was there as well. He tried to interrupt. He was, as Peter Wilson uh, writes here, he was quickly told by Keane to be quiet because he hadn't finished talking. (laughs) (laughs) So, Hasselbank said that Ronaldo does not give enough back at the moment. Keane was quick to point out he scores every two games for United. He feels frustrated he hasn't been getting enough games. He walked down the tunnel. Players have done a lot worse at Manchester United. I think it happens. It's human nature. And Neville's point was, in effect, Roy, Manchester United are better without him. They get more points without him. They score more goals without him. That's a fact. And uh, he said he's got to leave. I would have been glad for him to leave um, in August. And he certainly should go in the next week or so. So that was the gist of the Neville-Keane and to a point, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank yeah, <laughs> debate.
2: What were they actually athletes. arguing about, though? Like, I say this as somebody who watched it and who heard every word of it, but yeah. what was the argument? Because both of them acknowledged that it was wrong that he walked down the tunnel early. They acknowledged that uh, Ten Hag was correct in punishing him. It was the only way to deal with it. Um it felt as though they were making vaguely the same arguments but at each other and it was just a lot of speaking over each other and I'm not being snooty, like I'm not being one of those guys who thinks, oh, like, Roy Keane shouting isn't entertainment because it is, like, I do find it compelling and I found it really funny how cross he was last night and it didn't feel like an act at all. I thought it was genuine anger on his behalf but I also felt as though he was arguing with Neville who saw things probably 75% the same way that he actually did.
0: Yeah, I think there, on a lot of, aspects uh, coming out from the same point of view I mean I wouldn't be the only um, armchair psychologist who has wondered if Roy Keane is looking at the end of a great player at a great club and how he's been treated and starting to Absolutely be triggered somewhat relatable. you know I very, mean, very, maybe very that's going right? on here at touch as well yeah
1: but <laughs> Did, did they, like Roy, Roy had Roy has taken a position on this a, yeah. a, a while back. Took and it early. Yeah, took he it early, and it's not like him to back down from an initial stance. So he's going to dig his heels in, and he's going to row behind his argument regardless of of what the the facts are. You know, whether the the narrative has changed. You, I I got the sense of Gary Neville was arguing or making his points based on logic. Um, Roy was making his points based on a stance that he had. T- I mean, at one stage where, I can't remember what exactly Roy says, but but for all the world, Gary Neville gives the face or gives the kind of uh, facial expression of a guy who's in an argument with a five-year-old, who, <laughs> he's, you know, this guy's not going to listen to me no matter what I say, and I'm just going to have to give up here. And there was a bit of that going on. It was brilliant TV. I thought it was brilliant TV. Um, and it was... Look, you look at what are they actually arguing over and, and, and the wider context. I suppose really what they're arguing over is yeah, is... Has How well has Eric Ten Hag handled this whole situation? Mm. And I think he's handled it very, very well. I think when, he's handled it very when
0: well. When Keane talks about the fact that Ronaldo's been disrespected, yeah. so like, I even listened to Gary Neville's podcast afterwards and he was saying that, you know, various people I respect, I think he was talking about Keane, may have been talking about Ferdinand as well, uh, have said that Ronaldo was disrespected and Neville said, I don't see that really. I don't really see the disrespect either, I have to say.
1: I I, I really, really can't. Um, no, look, I think he's handled it very, very well. Again, you watch, for for me, I watch, seri- I watch situations like this unfold with a coach's hat on and you're trying to see, right, how is this situation handled? You know, I've been there before and I'll probably be there again and I would have learned lessons from the way I would have handled it before. I would have had a player at Wexford Youths where we would have had a, f- a high profile player and you have a falling out and we ended up having to go to the PFEI over it all and you're wondering have I handled that right or wrong and all of that kind of thing and, and even more recently I would have had a player and I would have asked a senior player for feedback after it, and they would have said that they felt I let him indulge them too much if that makes sense and let him away with too much so you're always trying to see how, how well it's handled and I think he's handled really really well here and I think for me Joe there is no doubt he will have Cemented the rest of the dressing room behind him um, very very well in this situation very very well. You look at 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 Arsenal, who are currently sitting second in in the Premier League, and uh, he was part of a Dundalk setup when we went to play Arsenal. Arteta was one bad result away from the bullet. Mm. He's now you know absolutely adored by Arsenal fans. I genuinely believe one of the biggest things that happened in his tenure was Aubameyang.
2: Yeah. Could I, could I just say quickly, Joe, on the disrespect? Part of it with Ronaldo. I think Keane was keen to stress he was trying to see it from Ronaldo's perspective, where Ronaldo might feel disrespected, even if objectively there was no act of disrespect. Oh, yeah, and I find like maybe we're sometimes we're quick to try and put ourselves in the the boots in this instance of guys who were playing at this elite level of sport, and they're not the same human beings as us whatsoever. Like. Yeah the temptation often with something like this is to argue that Cristiano Ronaldo isn't bigger than Manchester United, right? It's, it's like an old trope anytime something this, like this rears its head. When in reality, he kind of is in a modern context. Like, Cristiano Ronaldo is the main character in his own movie and he's been creating and crafting this script of his life for the last 20 years. Now he's in his third act And suddenly it's like the studio are getting involved and interfering with the fairy tale ending, right? The studio in this instance being United, being Ten Hag, and for the first time ever, he's subordinate to other people. And like this started to happen as well at Juventus. Like Neville made the point in his argument with Keane that Leonardo Benucci and Giorgio Chiellini had come in and sort of said like there was a bit of a feed the monster syndrome at Ronaldo at Juve. If you look at their statistics when Ronaldo was there, they scored fewer goals in his three seasons than they had uh, prior to his arrival so like this has been slowly going off the rails as Ronaldo has aged and I feel as though his happy ending like there's no there's not going to be a sort of a rocky ending for him it's probably going to be like uh, what's inside Lewin Davis or something where he just sort of drifts off and I don't think he's comfortable with that and I feel as though he probably does genuinely believe the world is against him and that to some extent Ten Hag is, is against him even when objectively you look at it and, you know, are a better team without him.
0: Yeah. So, like, it's interesting, Paul McGrath writes in The Sunday World and he does take the position of the footballer, of Ronaldo, as in his, his overriding um, thought on the whole thing is just sympathy for Ronaldo. So the whole thing is, like, I just feel so sorry for him because I know where he's coming from. And he says what Ronaldo is going through right now is panic, desolation, confusion, you feel terribly alone, you feel incredibly vulnerable. Honestly, it was an earth-shattering experience for me and I had nothing like Ronaldo's profile. He's on to say, the thought of losing everything, I've no longer been able to do the stuff that set you apart from even the best of the rest can cause you to do the most self-destructive things. And there's no question that Ronaldo's behaviour is self-destructive. I mean, for him to not sense that against Spurs... Everybody at Old Trafford was maybe for the first time in several years realizing, God, we're, we could be onto something here. Everybody was happy, mm. and <laughs> for him to but, think, well, but, I, you know, I'm not going to sense that general mood. I'm going to hit the car and go, but, and then to re- release the statement saying we'll be united again and things are <laughs> like the statement was like, you know, look, things are bad now and heat of the moment, but like we'll be together. But everyone's like, we just beat Spurs. Like mm. we are. Things are <laughs> things are not a crisis <laughs> here that needs to be fixed. But
2: again, it's kind of that modern context where. What I'm saying about Ronaldo being bigger than United will probably annoy a lot of United fans or football traditionists. But like, if you think of it from from Ronaldo's perspective, like he is being publicly humiliated. He has 490 something million followers on Instagram, right? Like United have about 60 million, I think. So just to put it into context, like the extent to which there's been a sort of a culture shift in the social media age, where a lot of football fans. Don't nail their colours to the mast of a particular club, but follow individuals. And Ronaldo is this like walking billboard and brand, and this entire thing is being tarnished. And like he is so, he will be so cognizant after many years of having this level of global fame that he's been made to look like an agent in front of half a billion people. Like Like, what's that, like seven or eight percent of the global population?
0: But for him, it's humiliation. Shane McGrath touches into this idea that he's having to confront the awful prospect now that his powers are dimming. And for someone like him, the dulling that comes with age is hard to countenance, uh, as well as his extravagant sporting gifts, his ego is also otherworldly. And I think that is the thing with Ronaldo. Like, for him to score 700 club goals... You can't have realistic ambitions. You can't have like can a, a rational very, sense be a of yourself. Individual. <laughs> no, you need to be deluded. Yeah, you mm-hmm. need to. You know, you, your ego needs to be out of control to do what he did in his career. So, for the first ninety-five percent of his life, this you. insane self-image he had served it serves him. You well. And now, in the final five percent of his career, that's going to prevent him from saying, "Okay, I can do the Ryan Giggs Pro. I'll not play for four games, and then I'll go in and do." An hour, or you know, I'll, I'll I'll segue into, bit part Brian Robson. You know, great players that do that. That's why, as you said, this is not going to be a smooth landing. This Where is like, does he go? Oh, I don't know, Qatar for two million a game, or maybe France. Or what is ego like,
1: allowing? Though, what is ego allowing to do, to do that? I don't know.
0: May, do you know maybe? Look, I agree with you. This is not. Like, remember the Celtic target that says it's going to be a soft landing. Mm. We're headed for the great oh, economic yeah. crash of 08 wait here. Like <laughs> he's, he's, he just he can't switch from being what he was for that long, and we, that served him so well. He can't switch into being oh best of luck, manga, yeah. yep, high five, and you know score some goals today. And
1: like if you you say you use the good phrase when you said he, like his 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 actions are self sabotaging his own career at the moment, no oh, doubt, self destructive. Yeah, if, if if he if he comes on. Last week against Spurs, okay, plays out the remaining minutes, does a big round of applause to all the supporters at the end with everybody else, right? So he's on the bench yesterday. Yeah. He almost definitely, definitely comes, comes on yeah. when the game is in the balance, right? He potentially scores a winner. Again, we go around, we give the big round of applause. Almost every big club in Europe is going to want that version of Ronaldo. Yeah. The guy who's, as you said, the guy who's who's willing to be, you know, come on and win the game for you in the last fifteen, twenty minutes, and is, you know, hundred percent behind it's the team. It's too whether big he a change for him.
0: It's too big. He is the best of all time. Yeah, <laughs> but that's actually in, in his st- mind, he's the best of all time, and he's not and far off it in reality either, Joe. Yeah. To be honest, he's not. He may not be wrong. You're talking fifteen minutes against Spurs.
2: <laughs> yeah, I got a spit on your feet <laughs> or fewer. And the thing is, being, let's say, one of the best of all time for the moment he has become accustomed over the last few years and we've seen in Instagram posts for example of his where I don't know why I keep bringing up Instagram I'm not on there that much (laughs) but like we've seen him his obsession with his own statistics right like I think part of his legacy is probably he sees that little Wikipedia entry down the bottom of the page where like he has the the record for Champions League goals and that record is preserved until Erling Haaland surpasses it in 12 years time maybe then he can go off to MLS and and live out his days I, I doubt it but I think Coming on for three minutes against Spurs, or, or say even 15, he's probably looking at it, oh, so realistically, another game without a goal? Like, my goal is to get you. So you're just, trying, like, even statistically, or you're shafting all, me. Genuinely. Oh, anyway, and I think, uh, and I yeah. think uh, a, a modern footballer do, does look at things like that and thinks, oh, so, you know, my goals to game average is just taking a hit here for what? Like, so I can get a, a quick applause off the bench. Yeah. And that's not going to sit well with him.
0: The one thing I would like to know, and we don't know it, is has Ten Hag sat down with Ronaldo face-to-face and laid out the plan properly to him and said, I see you playing here and here and that many minutes. I can't have you playing there because of X, y, and said, but this is how I see the season.
1: How does the other side of that conversation go?
0: Well, it depends. I mean, if Ronaldo could stomach it and it was it was laid out to him in the correct way, maybe, but it's only, I mean, he may, 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 may still have said, like, get those papers away from me. I'm playing every game. I'm the best. But was it laid out to him as a, as a kind of cogent plan or is it just week to week mm. you're messing with my head here mm. I'm not playing I'm playing what's going on It just the communicate we don't know the quality of communication which has gone on and so maybe that's why off the bench he's just like because like, well, he wasn't even there for pre-season like this relationship has never been good no and I've heard people suggest that maybe
2: Ten Hag has almost engineered this You'd situation to make it even easier to shift him at the door, but I find that hard to believe, not because I don't believe Tan Hag would be that devious. I think he seems like a very intelligent man who would absolutely have the capacity to do it, but you're actually finding it a lot or you're making it a lot more difficult to find a suitor for Ronaldo. Like who's Apparently, gonna don't want, want him at the moment? There,
0: Apparently yeah. they couldn't in the summer anyway. I but that, Yeah, but know, I mean if you couldn't in the it. summer, are you gonna deliberately try to make it even harder? Like by Unless he's trying to blow the whole thing up. And like, just handshake. Get hands rid of this guy, so I can get 50, 60, 70, 80 million to buy a replacement. Like I, I don't. Maybe Ten Hag's saying I don't want to nurse this guy through the next two, three years. No, I've no doubt he's saying that. I don't want a good relationship. No with doubt. Them. Potentially, you know. So who
1: knows? Yeah, and look, like I said one thing I know you said it's it's different, worldly almost. The, the one thing I challenge you on is like we this this happens on a micro level mm. at every level in, in local June like when you're when you're playing Leinster Senior yeah. League soccer. There's a there's a Ronaldo in your dressing room and there's these kind of dynamics going on and as I say and then you ha- again you know that that thing about everybody else you know there's there, there there's the Ronaldo effect but there's the everything else now obviously the obvious one at, at Manchester United is is Bruno Fernandez like it's ridiculous how better Bruno Fernandez is when when Ronaldo is not on the pitch because he quite simply feels haha now today I'm the man and he steps out and he's a whole different guy um, do you think it's,
2: uh, do you think it's purely that I, I often find uh, because people will. Make that argument based on Fernandez obviously underperforming when Ronaldo was there, but I even think stylistically Ronaldo isn't the oh, right a type bit of, of that forward in it as well. Yeah, because Bruno, like Fernandez, like I'm not saying it's the only pass he can play, but certainly his most effective pass is just a pass that splits the defense usually in transition. And like Ronaldo isn't the counter attacking threat he used to be. The way a Rashford is, like Fernandez, this cross crossing where Ronaldo would come to the fore is very hit and miss so I actually always, honestly think they just don't even gel as players but they probably actually like each other like yeah. the suggestion has always been like oh well they've, there's a clash of personalities and Fernandes doesn't feel like the man when yeah, Ronaldo's yeah. there nobody does I guess But uh, the, the one other point I'd make on a
1: Joe just before I move off I can't remember I've read three or four Ronaldo pieces I'm not sure which one makes the point I think it could be Tom Kershaw here in the times possibly um, like the difference that that Casemiro equaliser makes in the narrative around this whole situation like it's unbelievable. Like we we've literally gone from a, an injury time goal from the narrative being point proven. United are useless without Ronaldo, and if he had been on the field yesterday, they would not have been beaten. And Ten Hag is a clown, and he needs to figure out way to get Ronaldo back into it. To, there is no way United would have shown this amount of fighting spirit yesterday <laughs> if Ronaldo was on the field, and the fighting spirit has got them to draw. Like it's such such fine scoreboard
2: margins. journalism
0: alive. Uh. And well. uh, two other quick takeaways: Casimir is a lovely player. Uh, yeah. Like he, he, I mean, he right. Don't remember Graham this kind of saying, "Look, he's a water carrier." He's far more than that. Maybe next to Modric he doesn't stand out but in that Manchester United midfield, not since Michael Carrick if they had someone who can knit things together deep in their own half. I
1: was brilliant. But McAlealy was a water carrier and he look what happened when he left Real Madrid and, and went yeah. elsewhere. He became a, a superstar at, at the role that he would not cast Look his a intelligence be, level. his football uh, like huge. he's great on the ball.
0: Oh. It's not talked about enough how good on the ball
1: he is. So good, so yeah. good. Just and it's, it's I actually I, I read a piece there recently and he was the perfect example of it yesterday where they talk about Everybody every, everybody is obsessed in football and in coaching at the moment with doing things quicker, doing yeah. things quicker. Casemiro does things slower. He takes an extra touch on the ball where somebody else would have, you know, played a pass. He actually takes the extra touch, slows it down, and all of a sudden a new picture. the picture changes in yeah. that one second that he's taking the extra touch, the picture changes and now a whole different oh, well, situation there, is, is on.
0: There were times where any Manchester United fan watching certain situations last night was accustomed to oh this is where they lose the ball yeah. uh, and they kept it yeah. and it was down to him and the other takeaway is Anthony is the biggest moan bag on a pitch <laughs> of all time and he had a, like, he, he wouldn't go at Dallow completely it was like a 50-50 they mistook who was going to go for a ball that was kind of in between them and he launches at He this guy's only in the place five minutes <laughs> And So he was doing this continuously but then he met his match in the second half in Bruno Fernandes. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where the two of them, there was a pressing thing out and it, it didn't work out and he had to go at Bruno. And as the play was continuing, they are screaming at each other mm. for another 20, 30 seconds because Bruno's not backing down either. So they, that could be a Kieran Dyer, but, <laughs> as, as you said Lee the, Bowyer moment.
1: As you said at the start, there's so much going on here that it does kind of uh, take away from the game itself. They, they kind of, the wannabe tactician in me can't let let us pass off without saying like so, so unusual to see a substitution made so early in the game in the manner that Chelsea did and it to have such a massive impact on the game. Um, I know Graham Potter has that reputation, but, jeez, 35 minutes, Joe, that's extreme even by his standards and literally went from, what was it, 5-3-2 to a 4-4-2 diamond. I mean, you couldn't rip up plan A anymore and, and it, it worked, worked in plan instantly oh, and it worked instantly yeah. instantly it a was, whole new game after yeah. it um, I just think they're going to be absolutely intriguing to watch for the rest yeah. of the season they really really are
0: I mean I didn't like it because it killed the game yeah. <laughs> like Jesus Potter Yeah, yeah. this is a spectacle end, end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's uh, the football over the weekend then uh, the boxing I know caught your eye so uh, on two fronts really there are a couple of pieces about Katie Taylor fights next Saturday in London against an opponent that she will completely outclass and it seems everybody is just bemoaning the fact that the Serrano rematch is not going to happen hmm. anytime soon. And then there are a couple of pieces as well and uh, noting the fact Ireland did win three gold medals at the European Championships. We just, <laughs> we just take this totally for granted. Yeah well it's inconveniently timed in relation to the Sundays as well in that
2: it only happened yesterday. Um yeah, well, what does well start there? It's it's bigger news, really, than Taylor's fight, and we can come back to that. Mick Foley covers them both in the Times. I guess it can be taken for granted the extent to which the boxers are successful on an international stage, but for a team to win seven medals at the European Championships, even the European Championships lacking Russian competitors in this instance, when their previous record was three, is obviously phenomenal statistically. And I think it's just even the little bits of detail between the lines, if you like, like Kelly Harrington adding European gold to an already phenomenal uh, trophy cabinet. And it completes the set for her. Like she's been a world champion in the past. She's obviously been an Olympic champion, but she'd previously gotten bronze and silver at the Europeans. Injury sort of thwarted her in 2019. She becomes only the second ever Irish fighter after Taylor to have won goal at all three majors or, or the three biggest competitions that so you can enter as an amateur boxer. And then, like, speaking of hat Amy Broadhurst, she's a world champion, European champion and Commonwealth champion within the space of, got nine, ten months. If know, even it's though. a
0: real bursting on the scene, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's yeah. Incredible. And, like, she's been plugging away for years at Underage, winning, winning European medals at Underage level. She's a phenomenal talent. She's almost, in a strange way, playing a similar role to the one that Harrington played when Taylor was part of the Irish fold in that... Brawlers has won these all oh, the more remarkably three kilograms north of her natural weight like she would probably prefer to be fighting at lightweight it's just that Harrington remains the incumbent there and there's only going to be one Olympic spot between them so that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out yeah. over the next spoil and then you have Aoife O'Rourke back to back European champion just phenomenal by her as well she won Stranger Gold earlier this year her sister Lisa O'Rourke is a world champion and plays midfield for Ross Roscommon so Just imagine being their cousin in Castlereagh at Christmas dinner. Like, you know, just, (laughs) what would you, I just wouldn't go, you know what I mean? But you know what, like, I suppose, like, to to tie it together as well, uh, Zorantia, the coach, does not tend to feature in these sorts of conversations. And, like, he arrived in Ireland in 2003 from Georgia. Uh, He's been the mastermind, really, behind over 150 major medals in those 19 years. I was
0: just going to say, so Bernard Dunn has uh, now departed to India. Billy Walsh, as we know, left all in acrimonious circumstances, all amidst uh, accusations of the association being badly run. Zor has been the constant and the medals have remained constant. Is it too simplistic to say Zor is the one that we need to really be watching? If he ever goes, then things will change? No, I, I don't
2: think it's too simplistic at all. But I think it's accurate.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think that to uh, the credit of Walsh,
2: to the credit of Dunn, uh, you could make a strong argument that it could be even better if both of them were still involved. Um, yeah, okay. And I think that Zor is absolutely well with the help of with the help of John Conlon, uh, Dimitri Dimitruk, Like, there's a coaching team there, uh, but Antia is probably the best boxing coach in the world. And Ireland, um, as a sporting nation, is blessed to have him. The fact that he rocked up here, like it's a, I won't spend too long on it, but it's a fascinating backstory, even because they Antia applied for the same job that Walsh eventually got in 2003 Antia didn't get the gig but Gary Keegan who had just set up the Irish High Performance Unit uh, was so impressed by his interview which was done through a translator that he went and sought funding to basically add a head coach to the director of High Performance so that Walsh and Antia could work in tandem and it's one of the best decisions in the history of Irish sport like he's been at the helm for uh, more than a quarter of our Olympic medals as a free independent country so it's not bad going
0: I know like Zor, we hardly know you as well. You know, that's the <laughs> other aspect. Like, and he's a
2: massive personality behind the scenes. Sure. He does get a little bit camera shy, but the boxers are absolutely crazy. But they him. need to drag
0: him onto the A show some night and give him a standing uh, no, ovation. Yeah, yeah, have all the boxers there who won it medals would be, under Zor. Would
2: be. Well, do you know what? When it comes to um, end of year awards and, and sports personalities and things like that, there's a coach of the year award, and Vera was going to get it, if we're honest, and I wouldn't begrudge her whatsoever. Like, and uh, I, I would say, like, if we were just looking at it objectively from a, a sporting achievement, even this year looking at what Andy has coached Irish boxers towards, uh, two world goals, Five, yeah, nine European medals, uh, crazy. Yeah, like, he's I,
0: I, he's I actually done. don't even think there should be an argument. He's overlooked, I think it's true to say. Um, just on the Katie Taylor pieces, so I see Mick Foley here, page 18 of the Sunday Times, and on page 65 of the Mail on Sunday, Mark Gallagher, both writing about the same thing. Really, it's that um, Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano are both uh, fighting at the moment. So Serrano in Manchester... Uh, fighting Sarah Malford and Katie Taylor's fighting on Saturday on Dazone. Her Sky Sports link has ended now. Katie Taylor fights Karen Elizabeth Carbihal on Saturday. So Mick Foley makes the point that in the pound for pound listings, Taylor's ranked number one, Serrano's number two, Uh, Malford, who Serrano fought, is 21 and then Carbihal, who Taylor is fighting on Saturday, is 229. He says, this is the company Taylor and Serrano are obliged to keep when they're apart. And so, he, you know, Mick Foley paints about the picture of Taylor retreated to the obscurity of rural Connecticut after their fight in Madison Square Garden. Serrano bought her dream truck, a couple of Rolex watches and signed the paperwork on a house in Puerto Rico. Uh, Taylor was back in the gym three days later. He says her social media channels depicted a summer that was dotted with pictures with family back home. But mostly it was gym work, sometimes captioned by a mix of motivational catchphrases and Bible verse. And that was how Taylor uh, spent the summer, really. She did buy a speedboat
2: last year as well. Did she? she yeah, does. It, does very, mention on, oh, it does mention yeah, a speedboat. Yeah, that's yeah, very, yeah, I was. just presume she'd
0: rented a speedboat. Oh, she it's bought it, yeah. No, oh, it's it's her, okay, her speedboat. good. We are no. talking
2: to her about it and she said that she has to go out with friends. So she goes out, um, I think it's on a lake in Connecticut where she lives and it's in search of just the tranquility of being on the water but she can't go on her own yet because she didn't know how to moor it okay. when she came back in. So, that's more like
0: her
1: doesn't it tranquility
2: yeah I. Uh, for a second I thought she was you know <laughs> and to be fair <laughs> party boat yeah
1: <laughs> to be fair Joe even though there is you've listed off all the stuff that, that Serrano went and bought herself uh, I unlike Gavin am far from a, a boxing expert like I'm sure most of the listeners aren't are, are probably in my corner rather than, than Gav's in terms of our knowledge but she came across as a fantastic individual as a person whatever about her boxing hmm. she came across as so so likeable I thought um, when she fought Taylor she really really did so look for the hard work she puts in she deserves all the stuff that she was able to, listen, to enjoy herself there but yeah look this was the piece that grabbed my attention as, as I say somebody who fleets in and out hmm. of, of boxing for the big events and, and not with the, the knowledge that Gav would have for me this was the the sporting event of the year by I know there's still two months to go, but I, I thought it was it was absolutely unbelievable. I, I've never seen a comeback in any sport to rival what, what Katie Taylor did on the night. It was incredible, incredible viewing. Yeah. Um, and on that side of things you're saying Absolutely. When do we get the rematch? Bring it on! And you know, if it's in, if it is in Crow Park, if they could uh, arrange it to be in Croke Park, and he goes into a little bit of the ins and outs of yeah. why that may or may not happen. You know, I for one and many, many more would look to be there. Well, on the, the only other thing I'd say, Joe, on yeah. the flip side, we haven't watched it that night. I don't know if I do want it to happen because I can't oh. see any world in which he wins a rematch. To be honest with you, well,
0: Mark, um, Mark Gallagher talks about that like how the initial enthusiasm has waned. So he said, within moments of the final bell, before everyone started to breathe normally again, the appetite was whetted for a rematch. Even Serrano and her promoter, Jake Paul, were swept up in the excitement. In the immediate aftermath, the pair were agreeable to coming to Dublin for a second act. Such was the momentum. There was contact between Taylor's team and Crow Park about the prospect of staging it there. However... The initial enthusiasm from Serrano and Jake Paul soon started to wane. It took a long time for all parties to agree to a first bout and now it looks likely that if there is to be a rematch the negotiations will be even longer even more protracted. Such as Taylor's appeal there's a decent chance she could sell out Croker irrespective of her opponent but her team wants Serrano and part of that seems to be Serrano now says you need me let's pay up. I think a lot of um, people's
2: interpretation of Serrano or the the sort of forward-facing personality that we see on social media can get conf- conflated with the actual Amanda Serrano in the sense that she doesn't even have a phone to my knowledge or at least she's made a virtue of not having a smartphone for a long time and her tweets are generally sent by her manager Jordan Maldonado so the person that we saw in New York and I was lucky enough to be over there for the fight and during the week is actually the Amanda Serrano who does want this rematch but she like everybody else has a team around her who see the sense in waiting and there's huge sense in waiting from their point of view like they Katie Taylor uh, beat Amanda Serrano fairly and squarely but by a hair's breadth and if you wait a year as they seem intent on doing Taylor's not going to be better next time around now there's an argument to be made that Serrano at 33-34 may not be better either but it you know if your money was on anybody who would be on Serrano in that rematch the reason why it hasn't come to fruition outside of that sort of tactical delay is that when the first fight was agreed and Mark Gallagher makes the point that it was protracted, if the rematch negotiations are more protracted more protracted, it simply won't happen because Tater will be about forty two and Serrano <laughs> will be retired equally. So but the reason why it isn't coming around more quickly this time is because a lot of the I guess a lot of the concessions made to Serrano's side of the equation in order to get her to take the first fight sort of affected the rematch in that Matrim was so keen to get the first one done. It was like, sure, yeah, you can do that in the rematch. You can do this in the rematch. And now when it's come to negotiating the rematch, obviously Matrim are trying to roll back on some of the okay. uh, promises they made and promises are pretty loose in boxing. And it's actually Jake Paul who's pulled the plug in it rather than Serrano. I saw Serrano on Instagram yesterday making the point on a video clip of Taylor discussing the prospect of a Croke Park fight, saying, like, I'm still up for it. Like, let's do it soon. She seems keen. Again, maybe that's Jordan Maldonado, as I say, but it's a decision that's been made uh, in her orbit rather than by her directly
0: and one that will probably benefit her in the long run. The uh, interesting questions for the Taylor camp and maybe for Katie Taylor herself more than anyone is, say this drifts into next year, say this drifts into 18 months, does she say, I've gone too far into decline? I don't
2: think she sees herself as being in decline. Um, I also don't think that she believes that she can go on for five or ten years or whatever she said over the last couple. I do believe she's probably starting to realise that she is taking a lot of punches, like particularly from Serrano who hits extremely hard. Uh, she made the point in an interview with Zone, the broadcaster, that's going to be showing her fight next Saturday uh, during the week that she doesn't want to be absorbing that kind of damage for the rest of her life, yeah. obviously, but also that she hasn't fallen out of love with the sport uh, by any means. I think the issue facing Taylor and the people around her is that boxing has been so integral and so central to her life for so long that she probably doesn't know yet what she wants to do afterwards. That is an absolutely gigantic void. We hear it in elite sport all the time that people struggle with retirement, but a lot of these people at least have other interests. Like Katie Taylor might watch something on Netflix, but her life predominantly consists of her family and friends, church, and boxing, and boxing is probably 65, 70 percent of that. So to remove that from somebody's life without some sure. sort of a, a backup well, plan.
1: I, I was literally just about to, to read out the line because it's almost a line in its own within the piece that could nearly, you know, justify a, a two page spread on its own in the Mick Foley piece. It says how Taylor can ever make peace with the eventual sur- sundering of the link between Boxing and her own identity as a person when retirement finally comes always lingers at the back of every tribute at her remorseless dedication. And I mean, that, you know, I remember seeing the, remember the TV documentary or the documentary, Katie Taylor documentary mm-hmm. that was made at the time as well. Ross Whitaker's, yeah. yeah you know, you'd worry for her. The you'd only thing worry is, worry a bit there, you know? her, her,
2: like Brian Peters, her manager, Ross my her trainer, her mother, Bridget, people around her, Eddie Hearn included, are cognizant of what we're talking about and they know that at some point she will need to step away it just may need some kind of sitcom style intervention banner across the living room saying Katie we need to talk to you uh, from all of them to actually convince her of the reality herself and I don't know that for sure you know what she says publicly may not reflect what she feels privately I get the sense personally to wrap on this set I think next year
0: could be her final year. it would hate to see
1: her go on too long, not you? you know? Jesus, yeah. there'd be worse than see her go on too long and end up losing yeah. the last two or three years or something, you know?
0: I sort of think she's gonna be okay, you know. I think um, there's such a person of substance there. She's comfortable in her own skin. She's got her faith. I think she knows herself. I think if you have an ability to get out in the speedboat and be tranquil with yourself, and also she's not doing this for popularity. And all the endorphins that go with that. She does it because she loves the craft of boxing. So I don't see why there's any reason why she couldn't have great fulfillment still staying in the sport as a coach, and being up to crack it on and working with fighters. She's passionate about or finding something. I mean, sure she'll miss it, but like I'd be worried about others before her. It's often said about her, and I think we need to give her more credit in a way. You know, yep. my
1: question would be like like a great player who maybe struggles when they go into management. But yeah. could, could she struggle with if she if if that? boxer that she coaches doesn't have the same single mindedness and dedication to it could could she struggle with she's, well, she's going to need to find a good one if she's un, going to be unlike coaching you
0: know. Roy Keane being stuck at Ipswich I would dare say she'll be able to find Get some good best, ones yeah, I would think so you know yeah yeah um, but who knows? Who knows? I could be wrong. Like, we're all guessing from afar. You know? No,
2: totally. But you are right. And like, she's a she's a highly intelligent person at that. We don't hear a great deal from her. But like, as you say, she's a person of substance. Yeah. I've seen her at events around children where you would feel as though for her to be able to transition into even a, not necessarily like a full time coaching role, but some kind of advisory capacity. Have her name on a gym, something like yeah. that. And, and like, she's marvellous around kids. they love her and she gravitates towards them. That would be great. I, it's just I don't know if that will be enough. enough. I it may not be. But she's not
0: like a footballer who'll miss the crowd two or three times a week. It's like her life in Connecticut is fairly...
2: I think she might miss the crowd though, Where you know, even if it's only every three or four months. Yeah. Thank I you. mean, Madison Square Garden is going to be pretty tough to top. And the fact that she said after that fight with Serrano, like, I, I think this is the best moment of my career. Probably... Um, I suppose it put it into put into context two things for me, like the fact that she was appreciative of the moment, and that she could soak it in, and that she was probably cognizant that it won't get much better than this. Yeah, and that and that by extension to that, she probably saw an end in sight because if if you can only recreate this once or twice more, one example being Croke Park then it probably does start to feel finite in your mind. And listen, maybe she's thinking of the future more so than we are. And and we also, as you
1: said, we also know very little of her intentions away from sport. I mean, has she, you know, does she have intentions of a family? Does she, you know, those kind of things obviously are going to play massively into And I mean, look,
0: her financial landscape has been transformed as well. This isn't an amateur who's like, well, now I've got to get a job. I mean, um, in that many respects, life looks very good. The future looks good. From Katie Taylor to Roddy Collins <laughs> hey, there's a boxing link there as well <laughs> there is there is yeah,
1: yeah just about um, yeah Joe Broly Joe Broly does a, a review of uh, The Rodfather two thumbs right. up I would say <laughs> two he's, thumbs he's, up he's a big fan of the he book he is he's a big big fan of it it's a strange topic for Joe Broly to be writing about and uh, you know, not the kind of thing I would have expected to open up the the Sindon the and, and see Joe Roddy writing about how much he enjoyed uh, Roddy's book. I haven't got there yet, Joe, for the simple reason that um, I'm waiting for the audiobook to come out because I believe Roddy is going to read the audiobook itself. Um, which I think will be quite enjoyable I, from uh, memory apparently he'll just start talking i does <laughs> <laughs> <At limb, laughs> make it up as he goes along um, different book yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could be a very very different experience but uh, no look i to do things in the audiobook like and come here the lawyers wouldn't let me put this bit in but I'll tell you what really <laughs> happened there I wouldn't, I wouldn't slip in. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them
1: I wouldn't put it past them so I wouldn't um, no look I, I, to be honest with you I wouldn't go too much into, into Broly's uh, actual piece on it um, I might find one or two of the, the more I- entertaining excerpts from it but I just, I I, I think Roddy himself um, love him or loathe him he is a giant personality uh, in Irish football um, you know, you can't you certainly can't deny that um, and he is still talked about re- still talked about uh, long after kind of the biggest achievements that he's had in football He's he's Unique in that I don't think anybody who knows him remotely could ever. We're now in an area where everything is about. Like I started talking about Graham Potter there a few minutes ago, you know, and that kind of tactical intrigue. And you can imagine Graham Potter spends much longer planning his training session than the training session ever takes, to be honest with you. That's not Rod- that's not Roddy. Uh, you can't ever imagine Roddy sitting down and, and with the pen and paper out and, and planning. Uh, uh, you know the, the intricacies of a training session, but he was a massive personality. And I'll tell you what he did better than anybody. Joe was like with everything that goes on in football and managing a football team. People tend to forget that. Still, by a million miles, the biggest part of whether you're going to be successful or not is your ability to sign players. It's, it's, it will dictate how you do above anything else. How good you're on a training ground, you know, and everything maybe bar your budget, all right? Roddy was superb at finding players, talking them into signing for him, and then getting the most out of them. I would have been managing in the first division the year he won the first division with an town that would have started the season... 25 33 50 to 1 to win the first division and they went and won it quite comfortably and that was because he managed to talk players who should be at a much higher level into signing for Athlon Town however he did it I don't know because I don't think he had that big of a budget he his ability to brainwash people almost with the this this just the charisma and the stories and the the arm around the shoulder and people I think his this is probably people want to be around him. Mm. Mm. They want to be part of what he's doing. They want to be around him, and he managed to do that. And he actually at this that that season he was doing a weekly piece with yourselves. He was coming on once a week with yourselves, and it came down to themselves and Longford Town um, kind of head to head towards the end of that season. At Loan had a bit of a lead, but Longford were trying to catch them, and he came on here on the Tuesday. I think it was they were playing each other on the Friday night and I don't know whether was, I can't remember which of you was interviewing him, but one of them said you know and you've got a big game against Longford this Friday night that one will probably decide oh yeah no I mean we're going to win that one we'll probably win that one 3 or 4 nil to be honest with you so we will <laughs> he literally said and I was driving along in the car going <laughs> What? you can't say that for numerous reasons you can't say that you're leaving yourself completely open to egg in your face you're motivating the opposition this is the wrong thing to say in every way mm. they won the game 3 or 4 nil. <laughs> Roddy looks an absolute hero but like he would you know he was just the kind of personality who would do and say things and you know even just chatting to him after a game you just enjoyed being around him you yeah. really enjoyed being around him and oh, I can't wait to like the book will teach me little to nothing i would think about certainly coaching will teach me a bit about man management i would think all right but i just i just from an entertainment point of view i just can't really wait for it to uh,
2: to come out with the audio version joe there's a nice excerpt where he tried to teach Don Howe a little bit about football coaching when he was (laughs) uh, being scouted by Arsenal Uh, later Arsenal scouted him and it was there that Roddy first demonstrated the self-destructive honesty that ultimately derailed his soccer career Don Howe, Arsenal's head coach was footballing royalty as Roddy who had been scouted from the Stella Maris club in, in Dublin put it Don, Don didn't appreciate it when I started questioning some of his ideas. Turns out that having been assistant manager when Arsenal won the double in 1971, Howe had little or no interest in how Jimmy Brannigan had done things at Stella Maris. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: that's good.
2: Um, well, you're flicking pages there. There's another very quick on. one about uh, when he first met his wife, Caroline. Um,
0: which by the way I, I suspect there's a lot of heart in this book as well
2: oh for sure and to, to Brodie's credit um, he's quoting a letter that Roddy wrote to Caroline but he says I won't spoil it for you just the lines I want you to think of me all day and night because I'm thinking of you all day and night uh, I swear I will not go off with any girls I hope you are studying hard because if I don't get the football you will have to get the leaving <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, <laughs> why do we write letters anymore to each other huh <laughs> romantic hey, speak for romantic yourself. rod uh, <laughs> to blitz through a few um, pieces then and we'll get to some others that you guys have picked out for instance there's a little bit of cycling in the papers you've got Mark Gallagher page 60 of the Mail on Sunday spoken to Dan Martin about his new book and invariably um the issue of doping comes up and there's a parallel with the Paul Kimmage piece in the Sunday Independence. So uh, the new book is called Chase by Pandas, My Life in the Mysterious World of Cycling. And what Dan Martin says there is your options when you're going to cycling are A, practice the sport in a despondent and defeatist state of mind, B, quit the sport, C, turn to doping or D, avoid thinking about it. I chose option D. I knew doping was taking place, but I didn't let knowing it taint my uh, way of thinking. And uh, he goes on to be interviewed by Mark Galler and he says that's the truth he says down a phone line from Andorra maybe guys knew not to offer me anything but it didn't come into my orbit uh, but as I say in the book I knew it was taking place I just wasn't it just wasn't taking place near me is it still going on? Nobody's ever going to be able to say that it's not. In any sport, you're never going to completely eliminate cheating. But I know that guys can compete cleanly in the sport because I was able to compete. If guys like myself are still able to compete, then the sport is doing something right. Uh, Paul Kimmage is remembering um, 1998 because of the, obviously this talk now, the tour. Uh, coming back, uh, the Festina scandal of 98 and the fallout from that, uh, there was... Promises made. He, he remembers uh, November ninety eight. Jean marie Leblanc, director of the Tour de France, speaking before the Palais de Congress in Paris, and, and an impassioned speech about the future of the race and how it was going to be done clean, and uh, we we have to change things. And of course, Lance Armstrong wins the following year, and he's six won by two thousand and four. Um, and Kimage's reference references uh, Paul Kimage re- references Dan Martin's book as well, uh, an interview he did with him previously as well, where. Dan Martin did talk about taking uh, Tramadol once. It scared the crap out of me when the Giro, I pushed so hard, made myself so sick, it really terrified me. And Kimmich says, the only reason you were doing it was to enhance your performance. Yeah, that's the only reason you were doing it, yeah. And Paul writes, I guess we all like to pretend our SH1T doesn't smell. Um, to be fair to Dan Martin, he's saying that was a one-off, the Tramadol, and there was a TUE potentially for an inhaler as well. But in the main, he's obviously saying he didn't uh, cross any lines. But Paul finishes by saying this is in light of the tour come to Dublin. The point of all this, well, 24 years have passed since the tour started in Dublin and we're about to gift a fortune, 20 to 30 million, according to Jack Chambers, to the same people who made clowns of us the last time. Are they still doping? Can a clean rider win? Has the sport really changed? We have absolutely no idea. But the thing that grates most is that we don't actually care. So that's um, Paul Kimmage's point. I think it's probably true enough of people's attitudes to the Tour de France coming to Dublin. People will turn up. They'll watch the riders whiz by. It'll be a day out. The tourism people will be happy. There'll be a suspicion of doping, but, you know.
1: Can't see people getting overly invested in, in it one way or
0: another. No, I wouldn't think so. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. So there's cycling there. There is uh, John Green, page 20 of the Sunday Independence. You picked this out, Shane. Yeah, I I've got a bit of, I suppose, the fact I've
1: got a bit of skin
0: in the game on this one, Joe, as you say. Uh, We've talked about this uh, every six months on the show for a decade. <laughs> I kid you not. The Daily Mile, which was um, initiated by Elaine Wiley. Again, famous story. Scottish teacher realised how completely unfit her class were in Scotland. And she said, well, you're going to run for 15 minutes every day. And the thing spread like wildfire initially through Scotland. We now, by the way, have 15,000 schools in 87 countries. 3.75 million children have registered for that daily mile, running for 15 minutes a day. Uh, I mean, this has now been going on for so long that Elaine is now retired and this is like her full-time gig but John Green does the uh, I think the appropriate thing and he he lists out where Ireland is in the obesity rankings adults and children talks to Niall Moyna. it's not good we had Neil Martin in this studio and and one of the big parts of the interview was really trying to hammer home just how little PE our children do in comparison with other areas or other countries in Europe and and there was a, a commitment to do something about it I don't know where we are in that commitment, I'm sure other things have have gotten in the way, but we're we're well down the ranking list. And I mean, increasingly in society, especially wintertime, dark evenings, long days, and and very you know, this is a social and economic issue as well. The real intervention the state could make is through schools,
1: without a doubt, 100 through the schools, and that that is my day job at the moment. Joe is I'm I'm in the schools five days a week around Portage Town. Portage is a huge population and i mean, the schools coaching and taking half-hour classes with the various different class- uh, people in there, um, and it's under the guise of GA activity, but hell, with particularly with the younger ones, it doesn't resemble hurling or Gaelic football in any you way. Just have you, really soccer, have, it's you just soccer, do you? No, no, not that either. <laughs> oh, definitely not. You'll get me the sack now. No, no. <laughs> Don't no. pick it up. Get it. <laughs> yeah. ground football. Yeah, I yeah. um, lost there. <laughs> no, look, we're, we're, you're working on what they call FMS fundamental movement skills. So yeah, you you're in but, decline, I'm told. The which? The, oh, they are. The fundamental oh, skills it, it really, that, But that's because, I mean, to, I'm going to sound ridiculously old, but that, that is almost solely down to consoles, computer consoles and, and smartphones and all that kind of thing. Like, my young fella is asking for uh, a Nintendo from Santa Claus. He's, he's looking at potentially getting his first Nintendo this December. And I am terrified. That young fella lives on his trampoline. I am terrified how much time he is going? To, how much of a decrease there is going to be in the amount of time he spends on the trampoline?
0: To the, Terrified to the it. extent that, like, there might be a shortage in the North Pole of Nintendos. <laughs> no,
1: not not. Uh I'm sure Santa Claus will manage to get his hands on one all right, but there'll be agreements put in place in terms of how much Nintendo yeah. equals how much trampoline or sport well, in the back you know garden. what happens to those agreements, so best of luck <laughs> with that, mate. Yeah, we'll see how, we'll see how all that works out. It, no, but no, no, remember,
0: it's really serious. I it mean, is. Just, it's proper crisis unfolding.
1: Look, I did I did a, a big bit of research this morning, which was to ask him what's the crack with the mile of the day in his school. Um, And he says, yep, they they do do it pretty much every day, um, weather allowing. He said they don't, the teachers, he said last year's teacher actually asked them to go and jog around and do a few laps of it, whereas this year's teacher says you can do that. Or if... Ten boys want to play 5v5 soccer for that 15-minute break. They call it, they now call it a 15-minute fif- a movement break. Right. So if you want to play a game of sports, you can play a game of sport. If you just want to go for a few laps around the school, go for a few laps around the school. Um, but, yeah, they would do that. and They do that twice a day, he tells me, um, aside from what they call small break and big break. which Shane, is, it's the
0: best half hour of their day.
1: Oh, without a doubt. And, and this piece goes on to stress all of, obviously, the the psychological benefits, all the benefits away from just the fact that, obviously, it's ridiculously healthy for them. Mm. Um, But in terms of, you know, friendships and all of that kind of thing, like, we also established one of the, um, the junior park runs in our town just this year, Joe, as well. And again, you know, another thing for... Because, obviously, I am heavily involved in sport, but you are conscious that so many people aren't. Because sport, as the point is made here, is inherently competitive. And a lot of kids you know, as soon as they hear a competition, no, 100%. don't want to have anything to do with it. So the, we brought in the, the park run, believe it or not, this morning's is the first we've had to, we, we established it in June, this morning's is the first we've had to call off since then because it was absolutely lashing at home when we were coming out. But we have the park run every Sunday morning um, in our place at half past nine. It's two kilometres. Some of them... Connor, my fella, is quite competitive. Some of them will run it and do the best they can. Others will jog around so slowly <laughs> that they're barely moving. But they'll be chatting away to their best friend the whole way around it. Yeah. And there's still great benefits from it. And, and, so, and
0: sorry, in a year's time, they'll be jogging a bit more quickly. They, they will, of
1: course, 100%. Jo- and, and the knock-on effects, Joe, then, as well as that. So our, our track, thankfully, is right beside the park. So sure, there's not a, a single kid who comes to do the park run who doesn't then go from the park run into the park. And best of luck trying to get him out of the park. They're probably there for another hour. So all of a sudden, you know, it's 11 o'clock. And if you look at the young fellas' smartwatch or whatever they're called... He's four thousand, five thousand steps done by eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah. Hallelujah!
2: Up for the day. I think with that aversion that some kids have at an early age to competitive sport, and this idea that if they have to play a game of soccer or basketball or whatever it might be, that they might be embarrassed in front of their peers, yeah. like it's crucial to do things like that where there is a more communal vibe and that there is no um, necessity to actually compete. And I also think, even possibly at an even earlier age, you know, we we're taught probably at got three or four that you need to brush your teeth and it just becomes a part of your daily routine i think if if not necessarily sport but physical activity was uh stressed to kids in in a sort of a similar way that it's just part of your daily routine from that age now i'm not like i'm not making an original point here necessarily but just that they they wouldn't necessarily see it as sport and something in which they have to compete with people but actually something that just benefits them from a very early stage in their lives the same way brushing your teeth or not talking back to your parents or whatever and just on the santa thing i mean if Promises may be broken to parents, but I've found um, a contract with Santa It means a lot more. <laughs> a little bit of a stipulation, and uh, who knows? Time. Well, the piece,
0: piece points out we're up to ninth now in Europe for obesity, kids between five and nine. So it's not in a great situation, really. That's John Green. It's across two pages, pages 20 and 21. And uh, I mean, that's a big success story, though, to have 3.75 million children register for the Daily Mile. I mean, from let's just do it in my classroom in Scotland to that in a decade is is quite something that shows how change can be made pretty quickly well on the uh, trying to make change pretty quickly point it is respect referees day weekend day day I think day, yeah. Yeah. yeah Pat's plan in the, mail on, or in the Sunday world says this is just a PR thing I mean I, obvi- Joe, we could, we could obviously never, <laughs> it
1: is we could never respect them for a whole weekend
0: uh, obviously it's a PR <laughs> thing of course it is uh, that's the point it's to raise awareness um so you've various people writing about this. Colin O'Rourke, page 13, Sunday in a Pen, and Tommy Conlon, page 12, Sunday Indo, Shane McGran, the Mail on Sunday is touching on it as well. I mean, there's just so many uh, different approaches. Like Colin O'Rourke talks about a lack of accountability mm. at the root of ill discipline. Um, talks about, you know, if, if a mentor is doing it from the sideline, then the club need to get onto the mentor and get that sorted ASAP. If it's, Somebody in the crowd who's a baying ass from outside the wire, then those around that person may be saying say something. He says, uh, most of the time, the best people to do this are women. They might feel intimidated, but the quote attributed to Evan Burke applies here: the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is that, is that good men, he puts in brackets, and women do nothing. Decent supporters have the power to rein in a lot of bad behaviour. And he also says there are more excuses now for young people 's bad behavior than in previous generations: lack of parental control, shortage of money, no role models, etc. Nobody seems to understand two words: personal responsibility it is the root of civilized uh, societies so that 's uh, some thoughts from Connor Uh Tommy Colin. I, I thought it was just, it was just brilliantly written. I thought mm, um, really the wise. point has probably been made numerous times before, but in effect it 's quite a long piece, but he 's basically saying that. This is just the, you know, th- what makes the GAA great is also at the heart of this referee ill-discipline in many ways. He said the very essence of the organisation is the umbilical connection between home and game. You play the game not just for the game's sake, but for the community that you represent. The two strands inextricably interwoven. The game, therefore, transcends mere sport. And he talks about tribal expression. My parish against your parish. It's upon this rock the GAA built its church. But he says, if you play with fire, you get burnt. The same fuel that has propelled the GA to such power and stature as an organisation is the same fuel that explodes into malaise and violence when sparked by the slightest altercation. He said the GA has never been able to seriously eliminate this scourge because to do so would require a repudiation of its own core principle, its essential raison d'etre. There is a profound psychological conflict at the heart of this matter. He finishes by saying, so it would seem that as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. There shall be, no returning to the, there shall be no returning of the genie to this particular bottle. I don't think it's right to say the GEA can never get on top of this, but I do think there is absolutely something in Tommy Collins' piece. I've been in soccer dressing rooms and GEA dressing rooms uh, growing up right the way through to mid-twenties when work took over. And absolutely the uh, fuel of the GEA dressing room was we're playing the lads from down the road. This is us against them and you were charged going out, and there was violence in the air. Whereas football, there was never that sense of tribalism. It was like, first tackle, first pass, let's go out and play our game, that kind of stuff. Not to say there weren't issues in football matches as well, and there have definitely been issues on grassroots soccer sidelines, for sure. But it didn't get the heart beating in the same way. It's
1: it's almost a pro and a con of the GEA. That's what he's saying. It means more. Yeah. It means more. Because it means more the ref is going to get more abuse. <laughs>
0: and like a slight on you is a slight on the town. Yeah. So you better fight back. That yeah. kind of atmosphere.
1: It's brilliantly written. Look, Joe, the only point I, I would make, and we're talking about referee day, like, is it possible to change it? It is possible to change it, but it absolutely has to be a, a bottom-up approach. I was at a Common of school game during the week um, and I cannot understand. If, if I was the referee, and I wouldn't, I'd like to think I'm not that soft-skinned, if I was the referee, I cannot understand why the referee did, didn't just halt the game. Who was it, Li- parents? Literally, yeah, yeah. Literally just, so we're talking common on school, so we're fifth and sixth class kids. There was a gaggle of three dads standing together on the sideline who were so invested in this game of 11-year-olds kicking a Gaelic football around the field. It was absolutely ridiculous. And by God, help that referee if he made any decision that those three men weren't happy with it's embarrassing isn't it it was ab- embarrassing to everybody bar those three those three didn't seem to and I caught moved into a position where I was trying to get in the eye line and kind of giving them looks as much as say, "Boys, can you hear yourselves here kind of a thing and they looked at me as much as to acknowledge me oh, like oh, you just go on with yourself mm. there and off they went again but the for me the only way that that stops is that the referee stops the game and refuses to continue with the game unless they are re- literally removed and and then the kids see how wrong this is and then maybe the kids' behaviour is slightly different when they're an adult. But it's not going to get fixed. I understand that you have to be seen to try and do something fair play to them. But um, like this is something that I, I think is going to need 10, 15 years of fixing and it has to happen with.
0: Like Pat's plan's right. Of course it is just a gimmicky or weekend. You know, he's not wrong. But I guess they feel they have to do something. Because actually it's been as bad a year as I can remember. The litany of drip, yeah, I, drip, drip I, I, of...
2: Uh, issues. I've absolutely zero doubt that these issues have persisted for years like but I wonder to what extent is it just that maybe the conversation is more prevalent that we hear more examples of it recently as well in the sense that um, because it because it's a talking point because it's been discussed as a plague on the game it's more accentuated when it actually yeah. happens And uh, well, it's a
0: story now you get to you, uh, you stick it up it gets clicks and, and often a mobile phone captures it as well which adds a bit of
2: And I think maybe you, you know, know arguably more mobile phones are out now to capture those moments than might have been the case even last year like I'm not I, I don't know for sure but I'm not certain that there has been an increase necessarily just an increase in our exposure to it mm. Yeah uh, Like I what you were saying there, Shane, about like a, a potential solution being the referee stopping a game, I think on the one hand, I'd love to see that happen where you actually present the supposed adults on the sideline with no alternative but to shut the hell up. Otherwise, your children's game can't actually yeah. proceed. But equally, it's probably a double-edged sword, like where if those people were as brazen as you're making them out to be, they may just continue to shout and and it becomes a bigger scene and suddenly it's in the... Indo or, or the 42 or whatever. Um, and, I, and I wonder is like it probably shouldn't actually rest on the referee's shoulders to intervene here? I completely agree with you, like that it has to be from the ground up. I, I think Tommy's piece is interesting in the sense that it outlines absolutely brilliantly and quite poetically what the GAA means to people to a certain extent. Um, I suppose it's unfortunate that all of this spectacular guttural energy. Uh, it's directed towards the referee you know and you kind of think like why geez why does the referee get it more than everybody else on the pitch it's like because he's not going to swing back at you or he's not going to you know what I mean like and they're just lightning rods in that sort of an environment um, they, like I don't I think it's going to be a gradual process where personal responsibility as called O'Rourke puts it does come into it but it's going to have to be drilled into people from an earlier age to just I know it's a cliche but just to have a little bit more respect for people and if it becomes part of like I don't think necessarily that having respect for a referee from an early age up to senior will dilute in any way from all of the brilliance of the GA that Tommy outlines in his piece it's just it needs to start somewhere and I guess it's there Mm.
0: so uh, there's a there's just a quick mention but it was on page 10 the Sunday Times and it's Vera Pau and so the qualification draw happened yesterday morning Ireland a very tough draw by the way so Nigeria and Australia Hosts, they are going to be good invariably, and they're highly ranked anyway. They're what 13th in the world and Olympic champions. Canada and Vera Powers making the point. Nigeria, by the way, they're way better than their ranking out of pot four, and they're ranking at 45. In Africa, when you're the highest team, you can only play against African teams ranked under. Winning 10 0 doesn't make you go up the rankings. On the, on the few occasions they play against teams from another continent like Europe. Uh, high-level Asian countries or America, it's not enough to lift your ranking. We should note, Nigeria are a very good team. If they had played in Europe, they would have qualified. And they're at of pot four, so it's going to be difficult. But the line <laughs> that caught my eye. The opportunism here, oh my God. So she said, it's funny, when you qualify, suddenly there are lots of players with Irish backgrounds. They email you and they weren't emailing you before you qualified.
1: Yep, and she already goes as far as to, she's kind of, Paving the way a little bit that we may see one or two of these uh, girls because she does say that we are only entertaining those who already hold Irish passports, mm. uh, not those that are now going to go seeking Irish passports to to try and, and play for Ireland. So, you know, it's a balancing act there, you know, the com- you know, trying to be as competitive as they possibly can be. You look at Lily Ag, and, and you know, she was absolutely top class for, for Ireland from the time she came into the setup. Um, Lily Ag's background is 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 Cove. Uh, she was tra- she she spoke to the, our our Cove under seventeen girls before one of our sessions there last month, and you know you couldn't but like her um, and really warm to her. And she is now you feel she is now one hundred percent integrated into area setup. You know how many of those were willing to try and, and, and work with or make that happen with you would think one maximum two more um, because obviously the people the, the girls who have got us there you know she's got to surely have some sort of I'm not,
0: not sure about the wisdom of saying I've had loads of emails now since we qualified because now like the next camp when she unveils <laughs> here's a new player we're all going to be like wow <laughs> We think, know what happened here.
2: I'm not sure if it's in that piece. I know Morris Brosnan was on that uh, call for us, or it may have been an in-person thing. I'm not sure, but uh, I saw a quote that we had where she qualifies it a little bit by saying, firstly, about uh, the fact that uh, these women will have to already have an Irish, <coughs> excuse me, an Irish passport, uh, but also that, like, <laughs> you know, that she has also had an eye on. Some of these players, arguably, so it's like if one or two do surface, I'm sure she can point towards the fact that we'll be we actually already knew about this player. It's okay. not necessarily somebody who e- ma- emailed me uh, ten minutes after the exactly, yeah, game. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't check my phone in Hamden Park and say, oh, interesting. So uh, yeah, but look, every little helps as well. And like, it, of course, uh, the introduction of a couple of new players will mean, by definition, that maybe some some it's players healthy. that were involved in the squad may say that that's elite sport uh, in that sort of a group. Ireland are going to need every little bit of help that they can
0: get so yeah. um, we're pretty much out of time very brief mention. mentioned Chris Houghton, good interview page 6869 of the Mail on Sunday you're going to see him in Qatar Chris Houghton, just if you weren't too sure what he's up to he's the uh, technical advisor for Ghana uh, where his father left in the 1960s as well so there's a, there's a familial, familial link to uh, Ghana they did get to the World Cup quarterfinal in 2010, Luis Suarez handball situation. But uh, he, he talks, uh, you won't be surprised to hear, he's asked about the um, the paucity still of non-white faces in dugouts across football. So 34% of players in the Football League are black and there are five such managers in full-time positions throughout the pyramid. Vieira at Crystal Palace, Paul Ince at Reading, Vincent Companies at Burnley, Sheffield Wednesday have a Darren Moore and Keith Curl, is at Hartlepool and that is it. Uh, more disturbingly, there are only two in Europe's big five leagues, the entire uh, big five leagues in European football, Patrick Fiera and Antoine Cumber of Nantes.
1: That amazed me. The second one nearly yeah. more so. Mm. It's
0: crazy, isn't you know, it? Would have
1: thought across Europe, there would have no. been a, in two. far more representation. Two.
0: And I like two stories 10 years ago, should we bring in the Rooney rule and all this? And there were like three in the Football League and now there's only five. So it actually hasn't improved. And he says, huge lack of diversity. And it's not because the talent pool isn't there. I will never accept that. He says, I believe in the Rooney rule, but does it work? And do clubs implement it? Probably no. What happens is what always has happened. The club sack a manager, but they already have someone in place for the job. And... uh he talked about his own time in dealing with racism. He said, "You experienced it. You got on with it. The support mechanisms were your home life, your family, your friends. That was the comfort zone. You would go back to them and try to process it." And he, ought, like such a, you get the impression like a very steady, strong, very capable man was better able to process it. Not that he should have had to than most, and but like still had to go home and process it nonetheless. You know, it's not to say it didn't take a huge toll on him. But yeah, um, the, the
1: numbers are st- the numbers are even more stark than I would have thought. Joe, to be honest with you, I mean nine nine. Black managers in the history of the Premier League. And that yeah. includes Chris Ramsey who had one game. Yeah. Um that's amazing like thirty years. Absolutely incredible. <laughs>
0: so you can't say there's not overt racism at place there. But oh. I don't
1: but I don't know how you fix it. I don't like again, I don't think you can I can't see how you can implement a rule. You know, maybe there are mechanisms around it, but you know, a club is going to want to employ a manager and whoever they pick, they pick, like they can't. I don't know how you can mm. force their hand in that sense. Mm.
0: Well, it's a really good read. It's on page sixty-eight, sixty-nine, Mail on Sunday. And uh, like I said, he'll be in Qatar at the World Cup. Uh, we're out of time. Was there anything you, you desperately wanted to mention that you didn't get a chance to? As we,
2: no, all good on rant. my side anyway, Joe.
0: Okay. Very good. Happy to avoid monsters defeat, Thank yeah, you. Yes. Sorry, we had Monster uh-huh. Lancer stuff written down. Um, I don't know. It's the usual. Leinster were reasonable. Munster Munster gave a good account of themselves. Munster are back. Munster are back. back. Uh, Shane Keegan, Co Ramblers manager, and Gavin Casey, the forty-two. Thanks, fellas. Cheers, Cheers. Joe. The Sunday papers on off the ball.